Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 23, and we're dealing with the fallout from Operation Savannah, which began in October 1975 and ended in March 1976. What started as the deepest and fastest invasion of any country by a mobile army since World War II turned into a strategic blunder for the South Africans. The South African Defence Force battle groups had fought well and the opportunity had presented itself early in the engagement for the chance to change Angola's history. A combination of diplomatic and military setbacks, though, through December 1975 and into January 1976 altered that picture. Operation Savannah had mixed consequences for the SADF. The main issue was equipment that was dated, and the officer corps was also still trying to wrench itself free from the decades of neglect that had followed World War II as Willem Steenkamprat. Military hardware was also based on a European war, not an African war. The lack of comparable firepower had shocked the South Africans when they came up against the Cubans and Russians, along with Fapla, in the last weeks of the operation. The Elant was a remarkably good small armoured car, but it bogged down quickly in the torrential African tropical downpours. Something much more powerful and with greater ground clearance was needed, along with the capacity to move infantry. The motorised infantry's main vehicles during Savannah, the Unimog and Bedford trucks, were incapable of taking the battering that the unforgiving African felt dished out. The four-wheeled Elant cars were unable to cope with both the RPGs fired by Fapla and the sodden, muddy roads. If the going was dry, they were a good vehicle. When the going got wet, they were a liability to both a crew and overall strategy. Infantry and sappers spent more time digging them out of boggy felt than fixing them for tactical use. At the Battle of Ebu, our outline two podcast back left the SADF with a particularly difficult gap to fill. The Soviet T-34s and T-54s and 55s used by Fapla and the Cubans had far greater firepower than the little Elans with the low-pressure 90mm gun, which could not penetrate the Soviet tank armor easily enough, although in the case of T-34s, they were World War II vintage. Another Second World War vintage was the G2 140mm or 5.5-inch guns used by the SADF. In Angola, these were outranged by the Soviet equivalent, 18 kilometers versus 23. The BM-21 Stalin organ tactical rocket system used by the Cubans had also caused chaos when deployed correctly. The Defence Force had begun re-equipping itself in 1974 as they converted the French Panard AML to the Elant 90, but this naughty car, as they were called by the troopies, had to be supported by a big brother. And that big brother, and the first major breakthrough in terms of equipment, was the design of a radically new armoured car, the Rattle IFV. Three years after the Rattle's first prototype rolled off the test facility, the Minister of Defence reported in Parliament that the vehicle was ready for production. I fought alongside Rattles in Angola and can attest to their incredible firepower, speed and manoeuvrability over an African landscape. They appear to float over rough terrain, travelling up to 80 kilometres an hour smoothly. Watching them is a thrill and facing them, not so much. Its only major weakness was the fact that it did not have a stabilised gun and had to stop to fire and then give up much of its mobility. It was, however, the single most important weapon system used during the South African border wars. First, it had six, not four, wheels, and later, flat-run tyres were added. It was the SADF's most mobile vehicle in the bush through the years of war in the 1970s and 80s. The infantry fighting version used a rapid-firing 20mm cannon, which had armour-piercing and high-explosive ammunition, the highly effective Rattle 20. The gunner on board could switch instantly between the two, which was another significant development. It was also dual purpose. 
A platoon of infantry could be loaded on board and these men could stand with their upper bodies free and fire or close hatches and fire through the numerous portals. This meant that small squads of infantry were introduced into a battlefield as the rattle hurried across the African felt. Soldiers could be deployed in seconds as it continued to roll. Another important effect was to save the infantry energy by driving straight into a battle. There was no need for them to run alongside or behind as was the case with tanks like the T-34. After running a mile with hundreds of rounds of spare munition and water, a soldier would be exhausted then have to fight. The rattle changed this. It gave the South African infantry an unheard of degree of mobility, as Leopold Skoltz writes in his book The SADF in the Border War. As the troops entered the fighting zone, they were protected from small arms fire, but not the RPGs and 23mm anti-aircraft gun, both of which were used by Swapo and Papla. Various types of this armoured vehicle were produced as a weapons platform. Designers incorporated the 90mm gun from the Irland on top of the Rattle chassis and was highly effective as an anti-tank weapon. While the 90mm was not really up to the task of tackling the Russian T-54 and T-55s against lightly armoured targets and infantry, it was lethal for other reasons. Its main protection against the T-54s and 55s was its ability to move quickly and during close-quarter fighting. This capacity saved Rattle crew over and over again. Fighting in the African felt meant close-quarter battles, Often tanks and armoured cars would be within 30 metres of each other. This was no desert storm environment or even the flatlands of Europe. The dense bush of southern Angola made it difficult for the Soviet tanks to open fire at any distance as the rounds would explode against the thorn trees and thick vegetation. That thick bush also protected Swapo and Papla troops as it did the SADF. The decisive fact in the rifles' favour was speed of reaction and here the SADF was vastly superior to its adversaries in Angola. Travelling with the motorised section would be the Rattle Command, where the leader of the mechanised force would travel as a mobile headquarters and was armed with a 12.7mm machine gun. Another model was the Rattle 81mm platform, while anti-tank missile platforms were also developed later. I had occasion to be part of an ambush on T-34 tanks and other Soviet armoured vehicles in 1981 and saw this training firsthand and all SADF troops quietly thanked God when they saw the Rattle was around, providing mobility and protection. The Rattle was actually the second infantry fighting vehicle, or IFV, in the world. The first was built by the Soviets and was the BMP-1, which entered service in the USSR in 1969. Later, the United States would develop the Bradley, the British built the Warrior, and the Germans developed the Marder. So the Rattle, like the BMP, was an extremely clever early invention. As the Germans proved in World War II, any new mobile system that was developed had to be followed by a whole new way of fighting for the infantry. Up to now, the SADF had used light vehicles to transport its troops, such as the Bedfords or the Unimogs. Motorized infantry, led by a handful of Irland 90s, had proved to be only effective when they were not faced by effective artillery or air power or both. We'll return to the development of new weapons through this series. Right now we need to consider the other effects of Operation Savannah, which was political. On the 18th of January 1976, the OAU had voted to support the MPLA as the new government of Angola. The South African invasion of that country had backfired politically. It was inevitable that the OAU would have eventually backed the MPLA, with the Americans adopting a hands-off policy and the Russians distinctly hands-on, along with the Cubans, who were now exporting their brand of revolution across the world. In a nutshell, the suspicion of what Moscow and Havana were up to was overshadowed by the blunt assault on a fellow African nation by a white minority government in South Africa. It was always going to be beyond the capabilities of any spin doctor to wriggle around that fact. 
South Africa was now pretty much alone in the world when it came to its actions. Pretoria had been condemned by its enemies and was now being shunned by the West, mainly due to its apartheid policies, and by Western allies who'd had their fingers burned only recently, such as the Americans in Vietnam. Washington definitely did not want to send its troops back into a hot war on behalf of Cold War sentiment just yet. The nationalists were actually fighting many wars on many fronts in South Africa. The main conflict was back home as the ANC's armed wing MK began to attack infrastructure, along with the PAC. While these two movements didn't see eye to eye ideologically, they did agree on one thing, the need to fight the nationalists inside South Africa. Classic form of resistance campaign began that was to sap the SADF's energies much later in the mid-1980s. Then, on the 27th of January, 1976, the U.S. House of Representatives voted 323 to 99 for the Clark Amendment, which, as I've mentioned, exacerbated the isolation of Pretoria. Further exacerbating the situation was the fact that the FNLA had disintegrated in Angola, and the MPLA now turned its main attention south, to the southwest African border. It could also turn its diplomatic attention to UNITA. The withdrawal from Angola by the SADF was steady, guided by General van Deventer's expert hand. It was deliberate and orderly, with the northernmost forces leaving first in a diverse collection of vehicles from vegetable trucks and civilian cars to motorbikes. Closer to the southwest African border, they passed citizen force soldiers, dug in protecting their departure, and finally these long-haired and bearded veterans made it home. Meanwhile, most of the refugees ended up at camps around Pereira da Asha before being shipped back to Portugal or settling in South Africa. The Chapenda faction of the FNLA were brought out secretly in the dead of night and these men formed the nucleus of what became 3-2 Battalion. I had the opportunity to travel in Angola with sections of that battalion in the early 80s and was saved at least twice during firefights by these men, so I'm naturally biased. But all sides agree on one thing. 3-2 Battalion was to become the most feared unit of the border war, as we're going to hear. As the South Africans withdrew south in January and February 1976, each unit then leapfrogged the other inside Angola, holding each line as they moved back systematically to the border. By the 4th of February, the SADF Railguard was only 50 kilometers from Southwest Africa's border, and it was a relatively large force of around 5,000 SA citizen force soldiers. The Cubans and MPLA hurried to fill the vacuum created by the departing SADF and the Chapenda faction, while UNITA was squeezed southeastly by their advance. By the 7th of February 1976, MPLA had occupied San Salvador in the far north, the last town that had been held by the FNLA. An MPLA force of at least 6,000 men backed by thousands of Cubans then began hurrying south, equipped with artillery and aircraft. UNITA was pushed out of its administrative capital at Huambo in central Angola, the former Novo Lisboa. By the 10th of February 1976, the Cubans and MPLA had reoccupied the strategic ports of Lobito and Benguela, and a day later they took Sada Bandera. There was a narrative built up later by the Dos Santos government that the SADF was chased out of Angola. The reality was the South Africans withdrew, then the Cubans arrived. But the strategic reality, whatever B.J. Forster's bluster tried to obscure, was that Pretoria had bungled its attempts at ensuring the southwest African border would remain clear of Swapo. Savannah had actually doomed Ovumberland to a significant series of battles over the coming years that would kill thousands of people. It was a bitter pill for the veterans of Operation Savannah. They took swathes of Angola from the communist forces only to hand these back without a fight. 
Some questioned why their friends had died. For what reason had they shed blood, only to retreat tactically? What was the strategic gain, they asked, with good reason. On the 23rd of February, the MPLA was officially sworn in as the OAU's 47th member, while the American Secretary of State Henry Kissinger ducked and dived during a Senate committee hearing in the same week saying the Americans had been unaware of South Africa's plans to invade Angola. Either Kissinger had been missing critical intelligence briefings, or he was lying. It was true that the CIA were on the ground in October 1975 without Senate knowledge, but the agency was reporting that the SADF was acting in concert with American wishes. Diplomatic courier messages also attest to the fact that both the US and France had been asking the South Africans to get directly involved to halt the spread of communism. Politics is a dark place where bad people pay, they say. The politicians needed to somehow recover from the strategic blunder to their ego. A month later, on the 27th of March 1976, the men who'd formed the future state security apparatus of apartheid, Magnus Milan, Constant Fulion and Ben Roos, stood with P.W. Boerter on a makeshift dais at the Ruakana and took the salute as the last South African troops rumbled out of Angola. What of the officer corps, such as Jan Breitenbach, who'd formed 3-2 Battalion, and Foxbats Delville Linford? These included the men who'd been in Kalekwe, the last town the SAD have held inside Angola. Two days later, more than 3,000 Portuguese refugees of all races fled over the border into southwest Africa. They were being pushed by the MPLA and Cubans, who arrived at the SWA border in the first week of April 1976. A meeting was then held on the 5th of April at Kalekwe between the Cubans, the Angolans and the South Africans. Foreign Minister Hilgard Muller told media later they had all agreed to allow the pumping of water to Avambaland to continue and that power would be switched on, and that the vital barrage and its workers would be protected. It's time to take stock, too, of the casualties. 29 South Africans died in Operation Savannah. More than 100 had been wounded. 20 others died in accidents and through illness or snake bites. More than 1,000 UNITA and FNLA troops were dead, possibly much more, although the numbers have never been made public. Thousands of FAPLA troops died, along with dozens of Cubans and a few Russians. Again, we don't have the accurate data. The world had reacted with shock at the attempt by the SADF to take control of a foreign nation. B.J. Forster's contact book of African leaders willing to talk to him was trimmed to half a dozen. There have been works published about this operation, folks. Some say Forster's attempts at detente with black Africa was not severely curtailed by Operation Savannah, which is just muddle-headed analysis by apologists for Pretoria, I'm afraid. The truth was, the number of countries which continued to have diplomatic relations with Pretoria was reduced by a factor of 50%. So I'm not entirely sure why some debate whether Savannah did the South Africans any good strategically. Militarily, though, the SADF gained a great deal, as we're going to hear shortly. Zambia was still willing to talk to the South Africans before the operation, and as a vital strategically located country, its decision afterwards to cut ties with Pretoria was directly related to Savannah. As a state that bordered the Caprivi Strip, this was not good news. Only Côte d'Ivoire, Zaire, Senegal, Malawi and Kenya were now openly supporting talking to Pretoria. The rest were openly supporting Swapu and the ANC and the PAC's armed struggles. The major point of possible victory had been those first few days in early November 1975 when Holden Roboto's FNLA were close to Luanda in Ambris and they had a golden opportunity to seize the country. While the overall history of Southwest Africa, I believe, would not have altered significantly, it was always destined to become the independent country of Namibia, the military effect would have changed.
Hindsight is all very well in telling of history. Roberto had failed miserably, and he had failed his own people, and the SADF battle groups providing support for him and UNITA. This is a military story, which has, of course, a political overtone. But imagine what would have happened strategically if the South Africans had succeeded in overthrowing the MPLA in the first days of its surge to power. No doubt the MPLA would have ended up in the bush, fighting a guerrilla campaign against the FNLA and UNITA government, with the South Africans giving some sort of support. The border war may have ended up another thousand kilometers north of the southwest African border. Imagine the logistic challenges. The other obvious point is that UNITA and the FNLA were doomed to fight each other because Roberto was an ethnic fundamentalist who had no interest in working with UNITA. He was only interested in his Bakongo people, and Jonas Savimbi, the UNITA leader, would never have entertained this sort of ethnic barbarism. In the end, we can indulge in scenario planning, and my attempts have led to a consistent answer, that the MPLA backed by Cuba and the Russians would have always ended up seizing power in Angola. It's how the Cold War was playing out at the time, because the Americans had lost interest after their own disasters, particularly Vietnam. Remember, South Africa's overriding ambition was to limit Swapu's ability to cross the Angolan border into Southwest Africa, and in this, they failed. During the next 15 years of this war, the failure would lead to many Angolans, Namibians and South Africans, Cubans and Russians dying in the border war. Chris van Heerden of Task Force Zulu called Operation Savannah a war of lost opportunities. P.W. Butcher said later that if the Americans had shown their teeth, the Russians might have capitulated because they don't like to fight away from their fatherland. This was proven correct in the disastrous Russian invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, where Russian troops definitely did not like to fight away from the fatherland. But Butcher was also doing what he'd become even more adept at doing later, avoiding the real issue, which was giving blacks the right to vote. It is true that the threat of a communist-inspired expansion had been one of the main reasons to remain in Southwest Africa, but Boerter had become convinced that he could use military tactics to deal with a civilian-inspired political conflict. Later, that would lead to SADF troops being used in peacekeeping inside South Africa's townships, something that the Defence Force Officer Corps was definitely unhappy about. Pretoria, though, proved one point. The SADF was not to be trifled with, and both the Cubans and Russians were impressed. The Defence Force had given notice that it may have been outgunned, but it wasn't outfought. Despite Castro's blustering about invading southwest Africa when his troops finally arrived at the southern Angolan border, they stopped and then negotiated with the South Africans. Had they continued into southwest Africa, the Americans may have changed their minds, and the South Africans we know would have given the attackers a severely bloody nose. But what happened next proved a strategic blunder. The insurgency into Avambaland started in earnest during the last week of March 1976, and now Swapo was in a much stronger military position than before Operation Savannah started back in October 75. It now had a safe border behind which it could withdraw. Swapo set up administration posts, training bases, and logistic structures right on the southwest African border from where it launched insurgents southwards whenever it chose. Worse, the Zambian leader Kenneth Kaunda had changed his mind about the MPLA and Swapu and now allowed clan members to establish themselves on the soil of his country openly. Before this, they had done so clandestinely. Only Botswana remained strictly neutral towards Pretoria of all the frontline states. But Jonas Savimbi had survived and Unita was going to be a thorn in the side of the newly ensconced MPLA and Swapu for the next two decades. With that, we need to halt and secure the perimeter. 
Next episode, we'll return to the insurgency in Avomberland through 1976. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. It helps escalate the visibility of the series. You can also send me a direct message through Twitter at Des Latham or through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.